0: Well, good morning. I'm going to give this a try. I got myself another headset, uh, because the last one died. And so I'm continuing on with... um, Wow, I made a lot of notes this morning. Continuing on with The Myth of Normal, Gaber Mate's book. Uh, I'm actually on it with like the second time, we'll say officially, more than the second time. Um, But I just finished chapter 31 yeah chapter thirty one and I think that's what we might talk about right I don't think I could wait till uh till I did a full on review because it relates to our last discussion psychedelics so uh Dr. Gaer mate wrote a book just uh, published this month um, the myth of normal if you've been following along in my Uh, podcast, you know that I agree with that. In fact, I go so far as to say uh, there is nothing but atypical. So chapter 31 of his book is entitled Jesus and the Teepee, psychedelic healing, uh, something like that. Um, But he's talking about his uh, healing, his psychedelic healing uh, and others uh, healing, potential healing with psychedelics. Um, His Peru trips. So long story short, uh, he has been busy. I've mentioned before that he's been doing something called um, Compassionate Inquiry, Self-Inquiry. It's no different than Jordan Peterson's self-authoring suite. So they're all doing essentially the same thing. Um, But during this last, what, 10 years since uh, The Hungry Ghost was published... He's been gallivanting all around the world, uh, doing these psychedelic trips, he says he's done over a dozen or maybe even dozens of these ayahuasca ceremonies. But as you'll see, we go into it. I still don't think he's learned, even after he was uh, taken to task by these uh, Peruvian healers that he was paying. All right, so let's just go through this chapter. Chapter 31, um, immediately, in the opening of the chapter, when he starts explaining about his uh, Peru, immediately it sounded like nothing but uh, psychedelic tourism, right? So that immediately will strip a lot of the potential healing. Because I've mentioned before, when someone comes to a new protocol in science, um, or to come to test, like say in a study, a trial, um, because they have the intention, the good faith of wanting to heal, they're actually 36% more likely uh, to succeed, even if they end up with the placebo, or it's a protocol that, you know what I mean, not a great protocol. I've talked about this before, they've studied a number of different mindfulness protocols that, I mean, they should have known were gonna fail. But, so that will apply as well to this, right? If 36% of patients heal no matter what the protocol is, because they came with the intention to heal, how about someone who comes to a situation uh, with negativity or worse yet, if the negativity and the toxicity are present within whatever the protocol is? And we'll get into that because literally that's what ended up happening. Uh, and so I asked, will he mention? And he does, but he definitely glazes over it, right? Uh, so he's talking about using psychedelics to get to this truth, to, you know, our authenticity. Uh yeah, so he, uh, he initially started talking about this retreat that went on that were all professionals going. And I find that funny because I think that was part of the problem. Uh, you need to have a mixture of professionals, uh, meaning noobs, poindexters, as some people get upset when I use that term. But I love that idea. These people who, as Nietzsche said, uh, have too much of, of one thing and not enough of everything. Right, So he talks about uh, these professionals and I even kind of predicted that they ended up being, um, I, you know how I feel when it comes to many of these scientists. They lack the ability to leave what they consider reason and common sense aside to be able to explore both the sense and the nonsense. And Gabor Maté goes on to explain that, yeah, that's exactly what his problem was. Um, because he admits that it was all tourism uh he actually uh, mentions this is called the temple of the way of light he says it was really authentic but it's organized and run by a western guy who hires you know volunteers it sounds to me like just about any other one of these um, money making systems because the truly uh the truly um altruistic programs aren't going to be advertising like this right um said it was uh, they were working for something they do not believe. That's my opinion, right? Like uh, it takes a special individual to have, um, I guess, faith, but the trust that you may not know everything. And when we look at the Dunning-Kruger effect, we tend to make fun of someone who's a noob, but we forget that Dunning-Kruger teaches us about experts as well, that they're just as likely to be... um, arrogant or to miss, that maybe they don't understand it, right? Uh, And as I said, he mentioned uh, that it it is almost all tourism. In fact, later he mentions about uh, the risk of cultural uh, barriers and such. Well, then why ayahuasca? Why? Because I think it made a lot more money. More people were buying into that uh, than, say, some other protocol um, that they hadn't heard about in the news over and over again, right? So he ship, uh, he shares his compassionate inquiry, uh, uses that during the day. He says the nighttime is ayahuasca, and in the daytime uh, is therapy with him. And I love uh, he mentions how. Okay, hold on here. Yeah, so this is a little note I mentioned. So. At first, he sounded like he hadn't had very many trips. Then he mentions he had, you know, a dozen or maybe more. But I I chuckle because not only did these uh, shamans have to sit him down and say, keep away from the rest of the patients. Your toxicity is impinging on their own healing. This same practitioner will talk about how, you know, doctors need special training, not just the 10 and 20 years that they spend training medically. But how about special training for for uh, trauma? He, he actually talked about how he had an intensive training for his therapists and doctors and such for training for um, trauma. But a couple of psychedelic trips makes you a guru because he does go on and speak as though he's some sort of expert on this topic, but then at the very end probably realizes that He made a real mistake in that and kind of backs off a bit, right? So he goes on to talk about uh, a mystical transformation for others. Uh, But I made this note because, again, I have read it before, uh, but I just don't quite remember all of the specifics. So I was a little surprised uh, that I made that note, right? So I made that note because of how he was speaking, talk about the mystical, mystical, mystical transformations that he saw for others, and yet he doesn't seem to have healed all that much himself. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, he talks about his dozens of trips, right? but I don't think he's even seen his first truly entheogenic experience. Uh, he talks about these trips that they have. Uh, there's moments of silence, there's singing or chants, kind of like mantras, He says uh, it's a hallucinogenic and a physical trip. So that's where he was missing out because he said he wasn't experiencing that. I mean, he felt some of the calmness and such. So Mate goes on and explains, you can pretty much tell that he had gone on, talk about a waste of time, money, and imagine how many other people he may have impinged uh, their healing because of it. But he toxically had a bad faith He even openly says that he was laughing at the shamans. Yeah, good luck. That's not what you go to these things for. You're supposed to be going with proper intention and good faith. He talks about frustration and disappointment at the shamans, the the ceremonies, the psychedelic medicine, but never once does he talk about his frustration and his disappointment with himself. He should know that he's actively impinging this healing, especially since he's had these insights, then written this book, and then, I would hope, uh, gone back through the book. And he still didn't realize, ooh, geez, maybe I should insert something there, saying that, yeah, no, I went to a dozen trips and never once did I have the proper intention, right, to truly have the faith or the trust in the potential healing. And again, I'm going to get to it later, not the medicine, but in yourself. This medicine just allows you to get out of your own way. It doesn't even unlock something inside of us. All it does is unlock our barriers. And as you can see, he took great pride in keeping those barriers up, even uh, when challenged by intense psychedelics. It's really quite sad. And, and I was surprised that he didn't mention, right? Because I, I am quite open about how toxic I am towards my own healing, and how much I can get in my own way. Um, It's this know thyself that the entire chapter is about, and the previous particularly. The previous chapter, 30, was almost exclusively about getting to know thyself and thy traumas, and obviously what causes, right? So I said uh, his bad faith was impinging the healing, right? But yet, he goes on and says he still sees himself as a healer and a teacher, Right, so that to me is an LOL. Like, really? You think yourself a guru and you haven't even learned how to uh, use these uh, these insights, these medications, whatever you want to call them, these tools to insight. So I say, it's toxic energy. Uh, yeah, so... The toxic energy not only will harm himself and others, uh, he's still traumatized and hasn't seen healing. Right? As a. Uh, yeah, that's what I mentioned. I said it seems odd that after how many books and how many trips and how many seminars, therapy sessions he's had, thousands of dollars. And he never came to this realization for, what, almost 10 years. How many trips do you have to go on before you realize that you're just wasting your time going to South America? And especially in the chapter when he talks about the effort it takes to get into the jungle. And never once does he say how absolutely horrible it would be. Like he talks about, it, I believe in the previous chapter, about the self-loathing. What level of of self-loathing must you suffer from, that you allow yourself to to track through uh, a jungle, travel halfway around the world, I'm exaggerating, and yet not keep an adequate enough open mind uh, to be able to learn anything, really. And that's the saddest for me, because he expressed concern In the last trip, because he actually had to step away from his therapy duties, he expressed concern for the other participants that they might, oh, well, they might be upset because they don't have me around. But never once did he express concern for the dozen other trips that he might have led and maybe even wasted all those people's money. Because again, if you have, I mean, it's possible that your guru, if he's completely deluded, could still help you heal. But I'm talking about good faith. So I mean if you saw a modicum of healing, twenty percent healing, what would have happened if the instructor truly was a believer in the medicine and an actual patient? Right? Like I've mentioned before, we have how many mindfulness teachers who can't explain how it's helped their very lives. They talk about, oh, I find it calming, and it helps me handle my day-to-day lives. But you can't explain to me how it helps you get over, say, a childhood trauma, or helps with a disease, or a troublesome personality, uh, whatever it might be. Never once did this doctor Gaber share, and this is a know thyself, share how many other people... Might he have prevented from truly experiencing the, the healing potential of this, this protocol? And not just psychedelics. I'm talking about know thyself. It's, that's the protocol here. So um, I go on. Uh, and that's what's funny. So they actually pulled him aside because the shamans, as I noticed from the way he was writing this chapter, the shamans noticed how toxic he was. And he said, no, do not. Um, take part in the ceremonies at night, and more so, do not have anything to do with these patients. Because even the shamans, not knowing who he was, knowing he was a doctor, but not knowing who he was, tagged him as so toxic that he would impinge on their healing during the day. You're no guru. So what they did, again, these are true healers. So, they explain how they need to uh, offload some of this toxicity as a healer that you can sometimes take on from all of these suffering patients. But they didn't give up on him. In fact, they spent the rest of the session, the therapy session with Gaber Mate, trying to help him heal, right? And he goes on and he explains his experience. And he has absolutely nothing to explain except that he just felt f- like flat on his face, prone, and he just laid there for like an hour or two and his his whole insight came from others. See, that's what I've experienced before. That those that have not had a true entheogenic experience, they talk about, you know, the body load or the evening or what somebody said or what they may have done. Right? It's this idea of great people talk about great ideas. Right? Small people talk about people and and events. So in this case, true insight leads to, right, sure, it could be so profound that it's difficult to express. But it's never so simple as you just going, oh, well, I was told I just laid there for two hours. Yeah. Yes, you come out of it with some incredible benefit. But I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that later. Like if you go on to say that you commune with God – and you have nothing specific to share about it. Yeah. So, I just say that in his days, there was no real insight. He only had calm from the practice, right? Which we see in the West. So much of what we're teaching here in the West doesn't include the sufficiency. I just actually were discussing with, um, I guess I could say uh, uh, someone I'm mentoring, and uh, he has uh, both um, disease and family history and personal issues that he's working through. And uh, that's what we were actually talking about just the other day. The fact that um, he needs some sufficiency in his practice. So he's blending Stoicism and Buddhism because he finds uh, a pragmatism or a sufficiency, a usefulness in Stoicism that he doesn't see in Buddhism. But again, he's not learning um, the Buddhism directly from the source. He's getting it from a Western source, English, very specifically. So he doesn't see what I've taught over and over again: the Sati Sampajana, this idea of remember your teachings, right? That things are impermanent. Suffering is is um, resides. Its its source resides in the self, and the self uh, is uh, a construct uh, that we attach to from moment to moment. It is as Gabor Mate calls. The self, from chapter 30, the self is just um, the experience we've had and what we've taken from that, how we reacted, how we perceived and, and how that goes forward. So I say the self is this trauma-informed adaptation, right? The affect that makes up the I is nothing more than not just the experience, which is an oversimplification that's even a what would you call that an empirical approach more so than the experience it's our reaction and our perception of the same right so he goes on um, I, I I actually believe that he avoided in, uh, insights right uh, as patients tend to do in Buddhism, right because the toughest thing to do is this insight. this is why Shamatha and Vipassana go hand in hand because insights are going to be challenging. So you need to vacillate between the calmness and the insight, right? Because you need calmness to be able to see the reality of either misperceptions from the past, the present, whatever it may be, or even just attachments we carry. So he talks about um, this one last experience where he, he just laid himself out, right? Uh, talks about transcendent joy as an experience. He said he saw uh, the Hungarian for, word for happy pop up in his mind, which again, as a doctor, surprises me. Happiness is not what we're looking for. Contentment. Once again, this, this serious dualistic outlook in life uh, rears its ugly head, even for somebody considered one of the foremost experts on trauma. Right? Heal thyself. Right? So... I go on and I mentioned to um, he had what's essentially a synchronistic experience from finally embracing this this experience. Right, Jung would just say that he finally attached to the pos uh, the positivity as something that he could carry forward. Nothing changed. I don't think they upped his uh, his dose. Like he may have. Something going on. I mean, I actually have explained this before that there may be a connection to people that have uh, less dopamine and serotonin receptors that they don't experience these psychedelic experiences in the same way that someone with more serotonin receptors. right? Because I know for me and many other uh, friends, anecdotally, that if you have a high ACE score, this is that adverse childhood experience score, kind of tells you if you're traumatized, tells you if you had a childhood experience it coincides. If you have a high ACE score, it coincides with a high, we call it tolerance for psychedelics, but I argue it's a higher need, right? Uh, But neither here nor there, that's the bleeding edge of science, I'm just guessing. So he says, um, he says it was the first wounded healer retreat is what he called it, all of these doctors that were wounded, right? Uh, and the shaman said it was the most imposed. Uh, what I meant by that, it was the most intense, uh, some of the, the hardest um, spirits to crack into, as they said, right? The shamans uh, saw so much energy still being held on by these healers. So they're not wounded healers. They're just attachment problems, just like everything else in life, right? Know thyself. They just never had the release necessary, right? Because gabriel goes on and actually explains this in the sense that the shamans explained that these doctors had all of this negative energy and this attachment that they had they'd held on to from uh, all of these patients and all of this, uh, what would you call it, toxicity you'd see in healing itself. I mean, previous chapters, he talks about how doctors just lose, lose faith, that they can uh, they can make a, a difference. It's um, you know complicated cuz people don't tend to uh to work on themselves but neither here nor there. So he goes on talks about the it needs to be a true connection with humanity. I mentioned this again later. I mean that's the third jhana in Buddhism, right? And this is what I've talked about. I map the uh the maps, uh, the meditation maps to just life, right? So uh, the first jhana is to uh, get used to your somatic experience, your body, right? So you're not constantly, as we've talked about, in pain or distracted. So that second jhana, you're able to manage the the, the thoughts, the mind, in the mind, right? Uh, kind of the goal of the Bhagavad Gita or um, uh, Yoga Sutra of um, uh, Patanjali, the idea of uh, chitta vritti niroda, uh, Sanskrit for Citta, which is consciousness, or we'll call this the I, this attachment to feeling, to want, to desire, to outcome, expectation, intention, in a selfish manner. Uh, Vritti, I uh, translate to kind of like the flapping of a flag, right? So um, fluctuations, but not in a positive way, it's just kind of like spinning your wheels, right? The flapping, needless flapping of a flag. And the roda, uh, commonly translated as cessation, but in this case to cease, right? Cease. It's correct in the translation as cessation. It's not always cessation, um, but in this case, yes, you're looking to cease this attachment to self, the attachment to these volitions and and anxiety, right? Uh, that's all it is. You're you're attaching to uh, something negative instead of highlighting the positive or just acceptance of the good and the bad, as impostors both. Right? Um, he goes on and says uh, he was communing with God, with the shamans in Peru. Yeah. But that's what we're talking about here. This communion with God is the third jhana. right? Communion, you're not yoked to God as of yet. Um, but you get a glimpse of this equanimity. And what is equanimity? Well, that's what I consider God. When you see that the aspect that is you is really just a shared energy that makes up almost everything in the universe. Right? This Jainist idea that Dharma uh, is in everything. And it is, if you think about the component parts of everything. Uh, is shared, right down to the atoms or the quarks or if you want to talk about um, what I've mentioned before—that uh, all objects are metaphor. So, be it feelings or, or physical objects, our relationship to them needs to be very similar. And so here's a little note that I made. So Gabri Mate talked about communing with God. Then he mentions Hungry Ghost, which is one of the first books that I found it. Just by accident, I uh, came across it at a thrift store. Uh, Being a Buddhist, uh, The Hungry Ghost obviously caught my attention reading about it. It was very, very um, fixated on addiction. Uh, But at the time that I found it, I understood that addiction was um, tied to the high uh, ACE scores, uh, tied to trauma, adverse childhood experiences, right? Um... So what I find funny is his take now on psychedelics. I've mentioned that he has a problematic take on psychedelics. So back in Hungry Ghost, he didn't see the healing potential. And he admits it in the book, uh, The Myth of Normal, that he didn't see the healing potential in psychedelics. But the problem now is he sees the healing potential in psychedelics, not in the self. So what I mean by that is psychedelics have a potential for healing because So many people, like Gabor Mate, are stuck in their rut, um, just won't get out of their own way. Psychedelics can help with that. Some people are so traumatized, they can't even find a sense of peace or a place of safety. Psychedelics can help with that. Sometimes people don't realize the the potential uh, possibility of a change of state, a change of perception. They can't see anything being different psychedelics can help with that but for the majority of patients there is many many other protocols and I'm going to explain what I mean by that because he goes on and talks about how hard it is to access this psychedelic healing but there's where the problem lies I don't believe that psychedelics are unlocking anything that we can't unlock ourselves sometimes we need to get a move on right if it's time or effort that I understand. Expense, it would depend on what you mean by that. If, if it's impinging on your livelihood, then yes, uh, you wouldn't want to waste years in therapy when you could uh, kickstart the healing with some psychedelics. But what I'm getting at is he doesn't see the true potential in ourselves and psychedelics is just unlocking that. He now sees psychedelics as a separate protocol from all the other protocols. And I may be wrong about this, but again, we're discussing this so that we can understand. And if anything, I may use rhetoric in an attempt to access the sense and nonsense, but we'll go on from there. Um, Let's see here. Now he sees the potential, but he even has reverence for it, he says. That is the black and white thinking that I warned about. He was completely against it 10 years ago in the books he wrote, Fast forward to today, he sees a reverence. He's worshipping at the altar of psychedelics. right? He used to worship at the altar of empirical science. He started to understand the importance of placebo and maybe uh, meta in our healing. Yet, he's placing this same... It's not groundless faith, same as science but too much trust. Remember, the first rule of logic is doubt. The greatest human forecasters are those with the greatest doubt, especially in their own theories. So my superpower as a dyslexic is the entire world looks like um, it's broken in a sense that I have to decipher it constantly. So I'm not in autopilot as often as others, which has allowed me to develop a stronger sense of mindfulness, higher order thinking, because it's mandatory. I digress there. I apologize. But what I was getting out here... Um, yeah, so I already mentioned this, this idea. What I think is, is um, he he doesn't understand that the psychedelics just unlock the healing... Uh, what's the, the term the scientists love to use? Modality. The healing modality is within. Uh, if anything, you just mentioned serotonin, right? The HT two A um, receptor. When we activate that with with some of these psychedelics, we see this experience. But we see it um, in religious experience, uh, in awe, in in feeling blessed feeling hopeful, feeling faithful, right? He mentioned um, transcendent joy, right? We call that piti in Sanskrit. If you can achieve this, that's wonderful. But that usually only comes if all of our systems are kind of working together towards the same goal. I'm going to get to what I mean by that, this gestalt idea that We are a system, a pattern, right? We're not, you know, individual little separate systems working together. We are, but you know what I mean. So I say this can be done more easily. And for some, they need this experience to begin their healing. But has he missed the truth of being able to do this with fasting or uh, vision quests or meditation? I've already mentioned all this. That's my note. Has he missed this idea that for the vast majority of the population, if they're not so traumatized that they can't even get out of their own way, as he was subject to? The vast majority of the population aren't that hard done by. As he says, they were all wounded healers. Well, are you writing a book strictly for wounded healers or are we looking to heal everyone? Because truly, this truth needs to be taught to everybody. Because, as I said, once you take your psychedelic experience and you actually open up the vault and can begin this healing uh, modality... (laughs) You're going to have to understand this. It's that story that I've told before about why the Himalayan monk didn't teach nirvana. He taught calm, stress relief, because the only way to the path of nirvana is through calmness. Right? So same could be said here that we need to teach everyone, not just the psychedelics, but once the psychedelics unlock this potential, then you need to use your own innate tools and, uh, and talent to potentiate the healing further. I've mentioned this before when it comes to microdosing. I actually feel in a very similar way that you should take um, a serious dose. Don't, don't quote me on that. What, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, well, you want to take a threshold dose or more. So you want to take a dose that you actually notice because that activates the HT1A and the HT2A, just as an example, that will kickstart the intention and the healing. And I've said before, it's the change of state that allows us to see the potential of a permanent change of state. right? So that's why I think the benefits of psychedelics, understanding that they're not changing you permanently, what they're allowing you to do is access this healing that you have innately. So the real healing potential here is to understand that psychedelics only unlock our own healing potential. And when you understand this, you understand the the temporary nature of psychedelics. You're not expecting this to carry on. And so therefore, how is it missed that we need to teach these patients how to continue to heal and continue to use this sort of protocol in healing, particularly without the uh, psychedelics? Right, so I say, um, uh, like Gaber Mate, uh, it tends to be our own blocks that uh, limit the potential of psychedelics, right? And it was only when he allowed himself to open up to his own potential that he has the potential to heal, right? So we go on here in the chapter. He mentions uh, all these different chemicals. I take note with a couple things. He mentions LSD being man-made. Um, we'll let that go. You mentioned psychedelic. uh, I prefer the translation to mind-revealing because know thyself, know thy trauma, know thy motivation, know thy trauma-informed adaptations. And I also take note that he says that entheogens are for plant medicine. Uh, Even though just prior, he mentioned how uh, the book by, uh, what's his name there? Poland. Uh, includes tobacco as, an, as a, um, a healing plant or protocol or medicine. And theogens, he correctly says that it's something that allows you uh, to access healing, but that's the definition itself. It's not plant medicine, it's any practice. We began 20-30 years ago when again, just like Gaber Mate, they believed it was the plants that were giving us access to this modality, this healing, this protocol. But we've come to realize otherwise that, right, just like LSD, since its effect is arguably minor and short-term, the majority of the trip is self-induced. I mean, this is this truth that whatever it may be, upaya, as we say in Sanskrit, right, um, Efficient means whatever the efficient means may be. It's an access to thyself. Right? So I go on. Um, he mentions the uh, the risk of the sorcerer's apprentice nightmare scenario, and he doesn't explain that. Um, but what we're talking about here is I've explained this before in my podcast. You run a risk for those as I've mentioned before. Um, microdosing or psychedelic healing is not universal, which is also showing the fact that he may not understand that yet because he hasn't talked about these differences and he never even mentioned microdosing, right? Because I believe microdosing actually does help because I think what it actually does is essentially what the SSRIs were supposed to do, but truly do actually work. I mean, why else would we continue to live amongst these compounds? I don't think they developed because of us or we developed because of them, but that's the gestalt. We may not be able to know whether we are who we are because we took psychedelic plants, fungi, whatever you want to call it, or the fungi, the plants, exist because of us. I mean, it doesn't matter because the real takeaway, the real lesson is the truth that it is the unity. It is the gestalt, the truth, that there is no separation of the mind, the body, the compounds, or whatever it is within us that gives us these insights. You can't wholly believe that it's just the compounds. You can't wholly believe it's in the self. But I digress. Um, He talks about that it requires a deeply led sessions. Oof. And I just made a note, the hubris right there. These therapists who openly admit they haven't figured out how to use these uh, chemicals to heal themselves, but they are positive, they are the guru to adeptly lead these sessions for others. It really is scary because he goes on, and as I said, he mentions the mind-body unity. Yet still, now, does not see the unity of the opposites, right? Uh, He just needs to read a little bit more Jung, in my opinion, and he'll get it. This idea of gestalt, because he goes on, and he mentions another one of his patients, who at the time had wanted death, but then found some ayahuasca, I have my doubts, right? But was able to achieve what I call a recontextualization of the self, right? He attributes it it to a connection to the plant or the, the patient, instead of what it truly is. It's Jung's uh, synchronicity, right? So they had this experience where they saw a potential that they may be able to live differently than the way they've allowed themselves to live or the way they've habituated themselves to reality, to perception, to existence. That's all that was, right? Um, It's what Nietzsche said. He said, we attribute these fantastic insights to a supreme being because we just don't have the faith in our own ability. We have that self-loathing that impinges in our trust that we would have the ability to achieve these ideas. I've said this before that I think in philosophy this open problem of induction is actually uh, a misunderstanding of the infinite potential of the human mind. I think the mind is the most powerful computer on the planet, as Dr. Gaber Mate was talking about, how we need to use our insight, our memory, and our cognition to navigate this world. And this is why I argue that Buddhism, as well as just about every other protocol, is an attempt to heal trauma, teach logic, um, you name it, it all works down to being present and aware and being able to bring your tools to bear. That requires that you don't have these trauma informed adaptations. You're not um, daydreaming. You're not uh, petrified. You, you're feeling well and you had proper sleep. I mean, it's, it's a gestalt, but it all boils down to intention. When you realize that you're here to heal and you're here to live and you're here to create then you start to understand how important this know thyself is, And so that's what he was going on. He mentioned again how Mioke developed a relationship with herself and her disease, and she was able to actually handle her inflammatory uh, flares, her inflammatory responses. But having a very rare inflammatory disease myself, I've actually come to realize that that's not what went on. What's actually happened is uh, flares are guaranteed with these sorts of disease, but they don't always have to be debilitating. But what ends up being debilitating is this catastrophizing, right? It's like, oh, I got a flare coming. What did I do? I must have screwed something up. Ah, oh, never. This is terrible. Everything's terrible, and the flare gets worse, pain gets worse, inflammation gets worse. Cause stress, cortisol, inflammation, all tied together. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But what I've come to realize, science has proven that five minutes of meditation can reduce inflammation. Okay, so what we're seeing here is acceptance and meditation in a very, very small way, but if this young lady were to bring, say, breathing to bear and mindfulness, I think she very much could see this exact same healing without believing it's uh, the plant, right? And then he goes on and talks about how we shouldn't do this alone. <laughs> I mean, really? Really? You talk about how important it is to get out here and and, and how hard it is to come by. But if you're like, oh, only for therapists and and don't do it alone. Not for everyone, certainly. But to say don't do it alone. So he talks about the integrity of the plant and the ceremony. I, I just think it's rich because he's ignoring the rich tradition of psychedelics that we have, even here in Canada. I mean, we have we have natural psychedelics, never mind that we've always had a tradition of, of importing psychedelics too, right? Um, he says all this yet, right? He's advertising. He goes on to advertise his retreats that he, he does in Peru. Well, if you're worried about the plant and the ceremony, because if you understand what's going on with uh, ayahuasca down in South America, um, because of so much psychedelic tourism, there's a worry that they have lost uh, this connection to the traditional medicine and the ceremony because... These people are poor, so they don't have much of a choice. If someone's going to come in and give you thousands of dollars, how can you say no? Right? This colonial idea. And he goes on talking about all this colonialism and the damage from it, yet he's perpetrating it himself in South America. But worse yet is the damage to the plant itself because there's so much psychedelic tourism. and It was never meant for this many people. This is why I say he should consider mushrooms. I mean, 30 days, you could grow yourself a new supply, whereas ayahuasca, they're cutting down vines and, and um, uh, indigenous plants to make this brew, and they're already becoming uh, challenged, right? So the hypocrisy is, uh, is, is thick here. And this is what I'm getting at, his black and white thinking, his dualistic perception of, of many, many things. And this is why I say that uh, our experience of self-actualization is a constant um, journey. It's not a destination, because as you heal, you can backslide a bit, or new things can come up. This isn't an all-or-nothing. It's a, it's, it's like a, a slow creep forward with a little bit of uh, backsliding. You know what I mean? Um, so, uh, so lesson. I say the lesson in the trauma, right? Uh, not only psychedelics. So he's talking about, again, the way he was explaining uh, the lessons in the trauma uh, was a little weird because, again, he's almost, um, he's almost gone 360, right? So as most doctors are, they're very empirical. They don't believe in anything beyond. He almost has too much faith in this medicine, um, right and not realizing again since it's you know a system like the mind body unity you can't separate um the person's potential to heal from the psychedelic but i'm not sure if he gets that yet right so he mentions uh, the reconnect with uh, the authentic self i don't believe he said that directly that's the way i put it across right but we're looking to reconnect with the authentic self i don't believe he said that because I got the strict impression that he either understands Jung and is not willing to really talk about it or maybe, like me, he shares a lot of insights with Jung and until you read Jung, you don't understand how close you are to these insights and and you may be able to learn from Jung because he spent decades working on it, right? So psychedelics for teaching. This idea that, like the South Americans, I don't dislike their relationship with the plant. They see it as, as like the Jainists, right? There's a a spirit in the plant, Uh, like little gods in the rice grains in Japan, this idea of of instilling the intention. And that's where I made a, a mention of why is there no mention of intuition, like Jung, this idea... That these psychedelics are just allowing us access to our own insight, our own intuition, right? Uh and once again, I reiterate it's not all drugs or no drugs, right? It's a gestalt. Right? So don't think that drugs are for everyone, don't think that they're not for, for some. Uh don't think that it's the be all and end all for everyone. Don't think it's the be all end and end all for, for every for anyone, really. Because arguably Even if you achieve a tremendous amount of healing from some psychedelic journey, you may take another journey, either psychedelic or not. I guarantee it's a must, right? As I said, these moments of clarity, these insights, are just a window into a potential possibility that we need to manifest, right? This idea of action, Right? So he carries on and I make again a note of uh, the gestalt of healing. Right? Includes psychedelics but it's not limited to. And he asks, how do psychedelics apply their trade? How do they work? He talks again about the mind-body unity. He says it's an access to the consciousness. He said, Freud said, dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And Mate asks if psychedelics could be a more direct route. I answer, no, no. Uh, Carl Jung's active imagination or the um, intuition or the individuation process, know thyself, know about your memory, your intuition, your process of of, um, perceiving and reacting. Know thyself, that individuation process. But once you understand who you are and you're beginning to work on that, that's where Carl Jung's active imagination comes in. Because Carl Jung's active imagination, you don't need psychedelics. He may have used some as well, uh, but that might have been just to get over some serious healing to be able to access his own intuition. But the idea here is the active imagination. I've said this before, you leave reason behind to access the sense and, and nonsense. That's where psychedelics come in. Arguably, psychedelics, the only thing they're forcing is is for you to leave reason aside because it automatically brings to the fore the nonsense. And in fact, I've mentioned this before that I think psychedelics do one main thing, that they make the easy things hard and the hard things easy. So on that uh, line, I would argue that what we're seeing here is they make the nonsense seem more reasonable and they make sense seem more unreasonable. By changing our perceptions, changes our perceptions. Changes our state, changes our self. That's that um, amala viznana, right? this perfected uh, self. Only a possibility when we can empty ourselves of all of these little seeds of preference and and experience, these bija, these seeds that we stow away in our storehouse consciousness. Uh, It's the uh, alaya vijnana, the storehouse consciousness of the self. It's no different. Buddhism, Vedanta, uh, Douglas Hofstetter, a physicist, he calls it the strange loop. Right, Carl Jung separated the I from the self, because he considered the I to be like that chitta or the um, the constructed self, whereas the actual self is not so much a construct but as a unity. This unity of opposites. When we realize that we have within us both good and bad, we have both, uh, you know, the I and the other. That's when we truly are able to access the present, our imagination, our memory, our cognition, truly be alive. That's the individuation process. That's the know thyself. That's the healing of the trauma. That's being present. That's mindfulness. That's contemplation. So I argue no. Psychedelics are not a more direct route, but they are a tool uh, for some who either don't believe in spirituality, so they're not able to access it by that way, or they're so incredibly um, uh, sick. There's a lot of different reasons, but they are not the most direct route. They just allow us, uh, maybe an on-ramp, to the direct route, if anything else. Uh, so I say the healing and the lessons, lessons are not in the medicine, but they're within us. That's the lesson that needs to be learned. So I go on, uh, access Huh. Yeah, maybe. So, is it accessing another consciousness, like Jung's Zella, his un, uh, collective unconscious, or William James' extra consciousness or an external consciousness? Right? Is it is it allowing us to leave reason aside and understand that we have within us an ability? to access, some people call it extrasensory perception. But it's only extra because, as I've said in Buddhism, um, strong, uh, concerted mindfulness can be called siddhi or a skill, not a superpower. It seems it to those who don't have basic concentration. But it's just a habit. It's just a skill that's been learned over time. Right? So uh let's see here. So Gazan mentions Rick Doblin. He's um I think a co-founder of uh, maps that's the uh, multidisciplinary approach to psychedelics. Uh he quotes him as saying the the membrane between consciousness and unconscious. That is I think a twisting of Aldous Huxley's quote from um uh the doors of perception, where he says, the thin veil between consciousnesses, right? There is no membrane, in a sense, between the conscious and the unconscious. It's, I would call it more of a demilitarized zone, if anything else, right? Because depending on the person, depending on the place, depending on the day, we have more or less access to our unconscious, either by choice or not. So I find it funny that he would mention a membrane between conscious and unconscious. It's these different states of consciousness. In fact, that belies a misunderstanding of consciousness itself. To think that consciousness is an actual state, it's not. Consciousness is an effect. An effect of the mind-body what would you call it? The mind-body mystery. Right? Embodied consciousness. We don't know what consciousness is. We know what the physical mind is, but we don't know what the self is. Well, to carry on, as I said um, Closer to the end of the chapter, he mentions Rick Doblin. I mentioned Rick Doblin in a previous podcast, uh, one of the co-founders of the multidisciplinary approach to psychedelics. Uh, They talk about how this ego recontextualization, or as I said um, in the previous segment, this idea of communing with God, not in the sense of somebody else, but with oneself, right? Um, off the top of my head, I can't quite remember the... Uh, it's, it's one of the power sentences in, in India. Um, it's, um, I am that. This idea that I am providence. I am divinity, not in the sense that I am better than others, but <clears throat> I've mentioned this before, that God to me is everything. So when you commune with everything, when you finally feel this connection to the universe, this equanimous action of like the uh, the sixth uh, sutra in the Isha Upanishad, which is when you can see yourself and others, and see others in yourself, that's true understanding, that's, that's uh, an awareness that liberates and educates, informs and heals, that's truly this idea we're trying to get at here, right? And that's where that expression that I, I, I have in French, because I guess I translate it in an English way that's very similar, but I say in French, au bas du ciel, right? We're not the base of the sky, or we're not the hinge pin of the universe, right? So the world doesn't revolve around us, right? Um, Dobbin says, uh, Hmm. So he says, we write or see the possible unity, this ego recontextualization. I guess uh, similar to the self-authoring sort of idea. I don't know. Maybe I'm misreading my handwriting. But it seems odd, writing about this unity. But it makes sense. Uh, I've never thought of that, actually. That might be an important uh, tool to add in uh, after. Because that's what Carl Jung did with his active imagination. Maybe we should consider consider doing some journaling around um, psychedelic healing, right? Before and after, maybe, would be a good idea. But as I said, this ego recontextualization is that third jhana, right? When you can see, right, you're not the center of the universe and, you know, you see others in yourself and vice versa. It's, um, it's... uh, it's like Carl Jung said, this unity of the opposites, right? You, you think it's, you think of the self and the other, right? The I and the other. And when you see that that thin veil between uh, melt away, certainly between the I and the self, when you realize what you attach to as you, oh, I'm me, this is me, this is what I am. And when you come to realize that most of that is fiction, there's a, a change of perspective, right? So this is that next step forward when you realize that not only were the personas that you put forth uh, fiction prior, but what you perceive is possibly out of reach, the answers you're looking for I am I'm sorry what you perceive is limited you realize that you know what i mean by that is when you realize the self or the i is this construct so the, the jung called it persona so it's um like you, you go to school and you want to put across a tough guy image right? <clears throat> when you realize that deep down you're really a softy you know, that was just like a defense mechanism. Well, that's not different, really, per se, to the idea of when you realize those personas are only, you know, fiction. It's very similar to Jung's individuation process, because when you get into this, you come to realize that not only is the I a construct, you know, this for show, but this self, this arbitrary thing, can never be fully achieved. It's kind of like impermanence in Buddhism. You can see it one of two ways. You can see it as a negative, like, oh my God, I'll never be fully complete. Or you can see it as incredibly liberating, to realize, well, there's always going to be a little mystery, or that little string that connects us all together, or the mystery, or the awe, Whatever it might be, it's all how you contextualize these things. If you think not having the answer is absolutely the worst um, thing ever, instead of realizing that sometimes not having the answer might be not asking the right questions or not being able to understand or to hear uh, the answers. So, by I've said earlier, by leaving reason aside, sometimes these weird little ideas and experiences can lead us to insights that, without it's really, it's really quite beautiful in a sense that there's no answers. It's all perception. But that's also scary to both the therapist and the patient to think that, okay, so this idea of who am I really is kind of an arbitrary thing. And I'll never really truly be able to complete it because even if I truly understand myself, there's still going to be an aspect that is like the collective unconscious or the yoke to the divine or, or even just, you know, part of the divine mystery. So the tetralemma that I've always talked about, it's a positive to me to understand that, you know, the answers aren't always readily available. And sometimes that's liberating, right? Because I love this quote that I came across recently, that religion tends to just get in the way of the practice right? The religious experience is what we're trying to achieve, and the religion just tends to get in the way of that, right? I mean, I think that's why in so many fields, it's important to develop muscle memory, so that your authentic reactions are, I guess you could say, uh, thoughtless, it's a hard thing to say, groundless. Right, uh, automatic but informed. I don't know. I digress. I apologize. So uh, sporadic psychedelic therapy. Uh, I made a note of because they were talking about um, uh, you shouldn't be doing it all the time, right? Um, and this goes to what we've just been talking about: the fact that you have to take a lot of time to integrate this stuff. Because as I said, not only. Not only is it weird to realize, well, you're not really the tough guy or you're not really the prep or you're not really the, you know, the, the one that gets the perfect grades, you know, there's a whole bunch more that go on to it. That's of course, um, shocking, but even more shocking is to realize that, oh my, I don't actually know who I am or, you know, as simple as what I thought to be true is no longer the case and, and how, Troubling that can be. It's not always liberating to understand that there isn't an answer to everything. Sometimes, sometimes it can be taken as a terrible negative. Uh, and that's when they mention this retune the brain's emotional balance. Uh, I think this is a sensitive, uh, uh, a sensitive attempt to avoid saying the wrong words because I think somebody has patented uh, some. Certain turns of the phrase, this idea of, you know, keeping your, your emotional state in check as being uh, the secret to everything that we're doing here, right? This idea of being present, being aware, being calm, um, you know what I mean, being in the flow, and, uh, yeah. And I kind of chuckled here too. So uh, Gabriel Mate mentions that there's recent evidence uh, in, uh, well, science, right, recent studies showing that someone with even one experience of psychedelics shows less uh, partner violence. And I chuckled because that's not recent. I mean, geez, uh, we've seen that study for probably more than 30 years now, that people uh, – I guess the thing that's new – is it's, we used to wonder if it was the people that are attracted to psychedelics are less violent or do psychedelics make people less violent. So I guess what he's getting at is there's been a new study that, that uh, tried to prove it once and for all. But again, based on the rest of the chapter, you can't actually say that because anyone that's coming to be tested, even if they've never taken psychedelics before, just their history alone. With violence, with trauma, is going to skew the results completely because you can't really. He says it even in the book too. He says some people who think they had a happy childhood, well, <laughs> I got news for you. Right, same idea here. Uh, it's so common that someone will think they're they're uh, they're not traumatized or they don't have traumatized uh, adaptation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the truth tends to be otherwise. Believe it or not. Uh, so um, so he says that he's not a psychedelic evangelist. And uh, I wouldn't argue with him because at one time he was, uh, he was against it. Um, I don't know. He's a bit of a, a dualist when it comes to psychedelics. He sees some of the potential. Um, he's seen a lot of the potential, but he does realize that there's some possible negative uh, uh, issues and... You know, it's not for everyone and it requires some experience and some, uh, yeah. So it's complicated, right? Uh, so he says uh, it won't help alone. Uh, but I think he still misses the truth that um, like everything else, it's just a tool to access the uh, the potential healing that we have. So what we should be uh, putting forward is – the infinite potential of the human creature to to heal itself. I'm not just talking about placebo. I'm talking about positive self-talk. I'm talking about meditation, mindfulness, hopefulness, positivity in the face of doubt, Um, you know. And then he goes on and talks about a section that I found a little funny. So I made some notes about. So he mentions how psychedelic um, therapy is uh, esoteric, Uh, expensive and time-intensive, right? And he says that it's um, bound to being out of the reach uh, for practical reasons and and, uh, for cultural reasons, right? So I I wonder, is it another doctor with zero clue of the actual reality of psychedelic use, Um, right? Like, certainly here in Canada, I mean, we have our own... um, Psychedelics that that we have a tradition of using. Never mind, in my lifetime, uh, certainly lots being made. uh, I mean, mushrooms, I think I've mentioned it earlier. Instead of going to Peru, in 30 days, you can grow your own mushrooms and know exactly the source and all that jazz. right? So, the expensive... Unless he means it the therapist, right? Because he does believe that you shouldn't do this alone. Yeah, hundreds of dollars an hour. Nobody can afford that. Because uh, insurance makes it unaffordable for everybody. Right? Because I remember I was paying hundreds of dollars a month for um, insurance at one place I was at. And they maxed out my dental in one visit right didn't cover this didn't cover that didn't cover this like that's because there's so much of these costs right there's so many people that are going to a therapist uh, weekly or monthly and spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars and that cost is being shared by by the the group as a whole when if this person was was forced to pay out of their own pocket, arguably they would maybe do something like eat a little bit better and think a little bit better. And as I've heard with so many of these um, patients of therapists, it's like the sitting on the cushion of the meditation. There's far more of these patients who feel the, the entire practice of therapy is in the room or on the couch. Very few... Comparatively, carry that into their everyday life. Similarly with Buddhism, with, with the Vedanta, you don't see it as often because they teach this as part of the practice to carry it to your everyday life. There is no separation between practice, divinity, and uh, the conventional reality, as we might say. So many of these tend to not understand that these sessions, be it whatever the protocol is intended to help you carry that through your everyday life to reduce, you know, the suffering, the negativity, and all that jazz. So the fact that it's expensive, I mean, I don't think there's a solution there if we're going to make it through a therapist, right? Which is, the irony is to become some of these therapists, you probably only have to take a very cheap course. But rather than making it reasonably priced, I think they immediately go to the hundreds of dollars an hour for therapy instead of realizing, well, geez, if we can get these people certified to uh, to be uh, psychedelic therapy sitters, if we can get them certified for, you know, a couple thousand dollars, does that end in a couple weeks or something? Does that justify charging hundreds and hundreds of dollars? Or maybe should we look at this being something different? Maybe this is why we see so often a community of psychedelic users, which is why I chuckle at um, him saying you shouldn't do this alone, because I got news for you, 90 plus percent of, of entheogenic journeys are done truly alone. Right? It's either because... You fall into a little K hole, like what what Reggie Watch was talking about, or so many times you can, with um, LSD or even magic mushrooms, or my buddy who just likes to run off on his own, you know, run naked through the woods as he'll he'll uh, kid about being a red ropping ranger, space ranger, or something like that, because this is an individual pursuit, right? I mean, you're doing it together, but you're doing it alone. And he says it's esoteric. Again, I, I chuckle. It's only esoteric because he sees it as mystical. And he also maybe doesn't understand that this is resonant. It's been going on here in Canada for for as long as he's been alive and longer. Or is it because he doesn't just simply explain that this experience of meeting God is the the verbiage we tend to use when we don't have the words to explain this Extrasensory, whatever you'd want to call it, this new experience, this esoteric experience, meaning it only happens to uh, a smaller group, as opposed to exoteric, which would be um, life is suffering. That's a very exoteric experience. An esoteric experience would be to be so insular uh, and so uh, so privileged as to not understand. Uh, that it absolutely would be a tragedy if only therapists uh, allowed access to this medication because of the millions of people that need access to this and the millions of people who absolutely would not go to a therapist for this sort of healing because of how it will just get in the way and all these others. It's just too complicated. If we were going to make these these protocols accessible only through a therapist, then we're only going to be helping a small portion of the people that need it. And arguably, the ones that most desperately need it won't be the ones that are going to come forward. I think this was proven by uh, Sebastian Younger's book, The Tribe, when the data showed that the the traumatized individuals that needed the help the most, the most severely uh, impacted, their lives most severely impinged, uh, severely impinged, were the least likely to approach, uh, you know, Anybody or anything for help. In fact, in the previous chapter, he he talked about this idea of um, uh, toxic... um, What did he call it? Super autonomous self-sufficiency. A shutdown of feelings, almost a phobic refusal to seek help or emotional support from anyone. Yeah, that's from chapter 27. And yet... No, let's just leave it to the therapist. You see what I mean here. I'm, just, I'm looking to use a little, little rhetoric. Uh, I love Gaber Mate. He actually began my uh, healing journey. So I actually uh, have a lot uh, to thank him for. But this is what we're here for. We're here to, to help advance this understanding, not coddle what little insight we do have. And then he mentions the culture right? There's this barrier to psychedelic therapy is a cultural one as well. And I would argue, yes, absolutely, with the ayahuasca, it would be cultural because you got to go down to South America. There's only so many of these shamans. But that goes one step further. When he talks about colonialism all the time, when he talks about environmentalism all the time, why was there no mention of this colonial invasion of South America for this psychedelic tourism? or the incredible impact on the environment and this tradition, the destruction of it, in a sense, that unlike, say, psilocybin mushrooms that you could just grow at home, these plants, ayahuasca in South America, need to be uh, pulled down and pulled out of nature and arguably becoming more and more rare. Right? Uh, So I said, uh, so why not a practice uh, like psilocin, which is the uh, psilocybin converted into psilocin in the body. So it's the actual uh, compound. Right. And I actually said, well, why not a practice of psilocin, right? Magic mushrooms. But why not one of the sweat lodge, right? I mean, this book... Um, the myth of normal mentions the tragedy and the multi generational trauma of the indigenous people, but it glazes over the fact that resident in the indigenous belief system is uh, an answer to all of this, not even uh, like an entheogenic solution, but one of like a sweat lodge or a vision quest or mythos, as uh, Joseph Campbell would say, their myth. So not only was it missed, that their own culture, heritage, and teachings could help them heal, but the fact that it could help all of us heal. So the fact that we should be looking at developing an entheogenic journey here in Canada rather than, you know, excising the culture of a South American people. Because if we did it here in Canada, not only would we be accessing the healing that we all need, not only would we not going around the world and we could certainly choose uh, a psychedelic or an entheogenic compound or practice that doesn't damage a culture and the environment but more so if we were to uh, encourage the indigenous culture in healing we would actually support them and their healing as well support our culture our identity our society it's a win 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 But it's a solution that maybe isn't as glamorous because it will be so messy to begin with because true healing is not meant for the 6 o'clock or the 8 o'clock news, right? Uh, So again, um, why not MDMA or some of these other classes, right? I mean the cost of these compounds are nowhere close to prescriptions. So I found it funny that he mentions the cost of psychedelic psychedelic therapy and compares it to years of medication for ADHD. I mean, I can't imagine psychedelic therapy being even close to a month's worth of medication in this day and age. So it really boggles my mind that he would say years. I mean, months maybe? Because right? if you're going to f- pay, like people who go on these meditation retreats spend thousands. Okay, so, you know, months, but years. Right. And he goes on uh, talking about how an Indian goes into the teepee uh, to talk to God, whereas a white person goes in to talk about God. And I find I mentioned this about his, he mentions settler colonialism, and as I said, he completely glazes over his own encouragement of the same. He mentioned someone called uh, Quanta Parker. Uh, He began a practice of uh, using peyote in the North American church. Uh, He said the Indians were more into not religion, but spirituality. I argued there's another example of a failure, because your very specific definition of religion then, bruv, Same as spirituality, because arguably they're synonyms. But more importantly, religion is your practice, your path that you follow with commitment and devotion and confidence. Which is exactly what we're talking about here, right? You let go of the anger, let go of the the attachment, and you have your acceptance and, you know, your uh, agency. I mean, it's all of this resident in one. Okay, He said, uh, and the last thing that surprised me, he said that after my communion with God in the Peruvian jungle, I had a felt sense of what Quanta Parker had meant. I found that funny. First, you can understand why. First, about his communion with God. Because as he explained the experience, it, it did not seem like an experience from God. It's purely uh, synchronicity because... It was the shamans who said he had communed with God, not him. He said he just was told that he went face forward and he saw the word for happy. So all synchronistic here, but to, to think, imagine how special you must think you are right, to commune with God. But for me, he didn't because he still admits he doesn't really know himself. So you may have had a glimpse of God, a glimpse of the self, a glimpse of also what you negatively attach to, which is what the self is. But to have this experience of communing with God, to me, speaks of the opposite of what this is intended to teach, right? The minimization of the self and the ego. You don't come away from that thinking that, oh my gosh, I commune with God, it's the true experience should be something along the lines of uh, what they had actually explained earlier, this idea of um, a two selves, which I think is just a really crappy way of explaining like a dissolution of a tangible self. And that's what happens. You go into these experiences, and, and what you attach to as self... Tends to slip away because you're your uh, white knuckle white knuckled grip on what it is that makes you you either from forgetting to hold on or just sheer you know what I mean the way things work um, you know it's like dreams actually uh, to the Vedantins they believe in the Tibetans they believe when you go to sleep um, you leave uh, this attachment to self behind, right? So it's the same idea that when you you, you finally let go, right? Arguably, it can be fit into Gabriel Monte who was talking about how children uh, are stuck in a theta brainwave state, almost a hypnotic state, as he says. I would argue it's more of a uh, unity state. So these children are more of the theta wave, theta wave being uh, the equanimous brainwave this unity brainwave. Call it hypnotized if you want, call it subject, uh, suggestive if you want, but it's much more um, open and understanding. Like This idea of possibly the, uh, the theta wave state is this Tibetan bardo, this state where we're transitioning from the attachment to the self to a communion with the other, right? And I mentioned here, I've shared before in other podcasts that God is how we contextualize our journey within. When you take a psychedelic or you go on a fast or a near-life experience, a really severe, significant meditation experience, Uh, I explain it, that it's like the Good Friday experiments, right? We see equanimity and this is how we explain it, right? We explain it as an experience of God, if we're a God person or, you know what I mean? As a Buddhist, you might explain it as like, um, I felt uh, like at peace or it would depend on how you'd explain it. And so I just explained, as I said, the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, and actually where my personal uh, contextualization, if I'll share that. So that's my own personal anecdotal experience. So when I actually um, read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the, I actually got the, uh, the copy by uh, Uma Thurman's dad, uh, Robert F. Thurman, when he first published the book, I believe it was like in the early 90s or late 80s, but don't quote me on that. Um, <clears throat> when he published his book, I was reading it. It wasn't the first time I'd read it, but again, I was reading it because the translation was different. I was reading it cover to cover. And so it had led to a thought experiment. So I'm sitting, I'm at work, working in a mall. Uh, I'm sitting in the cafeteria on break, and so I was uh, just doing a thought experiment. And I looked around the cafeteria, and I thought, "Well, what are the possibilities that I'm the center of the universe? That means that all these people around here are just actors upon the stage, right? So, what are the possibilities that when I get up and go back to my uh, my office, that these people just cease to exist? What are the chances that?" And I and I went through the logic like. So if these people only exist when I'm perceiving them and how they impinge on me, so there'd have to be some sort of system where, like, it's the argument of the Tibetan or the um, Buddhist argument of conventional versus uh, non-conventional reality. So arguably, there'd have to be some sort of uh, reality where these people would continue to have, like, a basic life because they won't just reappear when they're meant to impact my life because they'll have a backstory from the previous and yada, yada, yada. So, I mean, I've followed all this through and you'd have to be incredibly egocentric to go, well, yes, of course. Yeah, none of these people have a real inner life. They're not actually thinking about anything. They're just puppets on the stage placed here for my enjoyment like the Truman Show. So my takeaway was as simple as Absolutely not. So why would I ever think that my thoughts, my feeling, my body, my existence, my place, my position, my preference has any priority over another person? That's that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. If nothing else, it would be mental illness to see it otherwise, to think that, well, wait a minute, everybody's, struggling through the same existence. So even if you don't realize that you know, your self-centered attitude towards life is completely and wholly wrong, you still realize that first experience of equanimity. You can start to understand other people's pain. That's that um, empathy idea, right? When you start with metta, loving kindness, that's meant to bring you along little by little towards equanimity. If you can start to feel compassion for others, you can start to understand their value in relation to yourself. You don't have to devalue yourself. You have to upscale the value you place on the other. And it's about as simple as it gets. But that was my takeaway. My takeaway, my walk away from that experience for the remainder of my life was the fact that I had always been wrong. That I I believed there was such a thing... As a me, there's no other... Well, I didn't believe that. What I'm Sorry, with the thought experiment. What I meant was um, I considered, like, um, Nietzsche's idea of the will to power, the one aspect idea that... Because every aspect of our life is very selfishly uh, based, so everything will be. How does it impact us? I mean, even when we do something good for someone we love, it's still because we love them or we want to, you know... So this idea of will to power. But when you can truly contextualize that idea, you're not destroying the ego or the I or the self. It's this idea that, well, I love that Jung calls it the, um, the unity of the opposite. Because if you can understand there is a unity between like a necessary self, right? To get by in life and to support others. But at the same time, there's a necessary connection to the other, because nothing happens in isolation. We've talked about this before. This is not uh, like a uh, like a, a neo type idea that, uh, you know, like a Jean-Paul Sartre idea that you know I can create my own existence. A misunderstanding, I think, of uh, of Sartre. I can just create my own. That is narrative theory. You do have to create your your value, your perception, your understanding, your meaning. But that's not in isolation. You cannot self-actualize if in so doing you harm others. Or arguably in this modern day, harm the environment. But I think the same truth is shown that you can't change yourself or the universe by spinning your wheels on something that's not going to help. I've argued this before. Instead of having everyone fear for the future with Doomerism and and this uh, absolute uh, catastrophe that we're all headed towards, as they say, what we need to do is encourage people to make positive choices in their everyday life towards that end goal. But we know the human creature. We can't use the end goal as motivation. We can only use what's present and before us so we can learn from all of our mistakes the the best thing we can do compassion but what is that that's intention that's you care it matters let's get this done let's work together so it's presence it all boils down to presence right everything ties right you want to be an agent in reality you want to be present you want to be capable But it all boils down to, are you who you think you are? Do you react? Are you motivated? Are you interested? Are you capable of what you want or need or could achieve? I guess I'll finish on just, you know, status quo. Status quo is not what we want to maintain. Status quo is how it is, rather than how it could or should be right so this idea of know thyself is not about what it's about could or should so the attempt to understand who and what we all are is a creep forward it's an attempt at understanding it's not an all or nothing it's just a little bit of work like i said creep forward Maybe a little black slide. But overall, in the end, if we work together and support each other, and I think that that it goes back to the psychedelics and the healing of uh, the trauma. Because as he mentioned, you don't want to do it alone. You probably don't want to do it alone if you have absolutely no connection to society and all that jazz. If that's what he meant, absolutely that there's a tremendous amount of healing that comes, particularly trauma from the community. I mentioned that with uh, again Sebastian Younger's book um, The Tribe, he mentioned that soldiers coming back from campaign were as traumatized by uh, the society and the differences between the society and so absolutely this is why the Buddhists created the sangha. It's the community of like-minded individuals. Why? To support each other. Why? To heal each other. Why? To guide each other. Why? You know, it's The Socratic experience, but with an answer. Why? Because it's our way forward. And I guess on that, I'll leave it. So that was um, my thoughts on chapter 31 of Dr. Gaber Monte's new book, Uh, The Myth of Normal.